Welcome to another episode of Unspoken, Unsung, a podcast that introduces you to people you may pass on the street every day, never knowing how their unique stories might inform and inspire you. Today's episode is a conversation with one of my favorite people, Jerry McCann. We're going to dive deep into the life of a musician, from bar gigs to concerts, from learning songs on a record player to cutting albums in the studio. Jerry McCann is a musician's musician, a journeyman. Music has been his life for well over 50 years. For most, a career path in music is not an easy one. Jerry's career was no exception. As you'll hear, Jerry didn't do things halfway, whether it be positive or destructive. This is a story not just of survival, but also courage and discovery. Here's a good man. Jerry McCann, welcome to the podcast. Oh. We've started now. Oh, we did? Yeah. So it was <clears> kind <throat> of fun just thinking about this, about that you and I have never had this kind of a conversation, and I, I, uh, I'm really Sober. looking forward. <laughs> Definitely not this kind. So, but, uh, you know, one thing that I want to say with all seriousness is your life as a, as a singer, as a songwriter, a performer, a teacher and a mentor, uh, you've had a great influence on a lot more people than you probably even know, and definitely me, for sure. Um, so I want to really dive into it. Uh, I want to start with your childhood. So you were born in Chula Vista? No. no. I was born in Oak Harbor, Washington. Oh, that's right. How did you end up in Chula Vista? My dad was in the Navy, and he got transferred to San Diego, and at first two years I was here. I came here a year and a half old and we lived out where the sports arena is now in Navy housing and uh, after a while looking around for a house to live we wound up buying a house in Chula Vista right where I'm living today. Uh-huh that's great. So tell me about your parents. So what, what were they like? My mom and dad were small town people from Iowa around the Cedar Rapids area a little uh, northeastern town in, in Iowa and my dad actually lived out in the outskirts in a little town called Wabeek which is back then probably about maybe 400 people and he was uh, it was a farming community and uh, my grandfather who was a major influence on my life although I never met the man he was a professional musician he was a fiddle player and he played what they call a table dulcimer which kind of looks like a giant auto harp and you play it with little hammers mm. uh, kind of a European instrument and he tried to support my grandmother and my aunt and my dad playing music. Although, as you probably know about music, it's, a, it's feast or famine. So he did other stuff like build barns and uh, paint buildings and uh, just about whatever he could do to, to keep you know, the cash flow going. And he died when my father was 12 and left uh, <clears throat> my grandmother and my aunt and my dad basically penniless. He had no insurance. Hmm. He had no savings. Uh, so he became a man at 12. I think he told me that at least a thousand times. At 12 years old, all the people in, that were at the funeral, you're the man of the house now. Yeah. And my dad took it seriously. And he went to work, uh, working in a place that painted cars. 
and uh, never missed a day of work, never missed a day of school. He worked 20 hours a week painting cars and then went to school, never old, missed a day of school. Was he then? Well, he was 12 when my, my granddad died. And doing that painting cars thing before he was even a teenager? Yeah. Wow. And um, so then right after that, he, of course, World War II broke out and he signed up in the Navy. He would have signed up when he was 17, but my grandmother wouldn't let him. So when he got 18, he was signed up and out the door. Hmm. He went to Great Lakes Naval Training Center up uh, in Chicago. And uh, my mom was kind of the typical small town girl. She had lots of brothers and sisters, actually only one sister, but four brothers. And um, her dad was German, her mother was German, so I got a little German in me, and a little Irish, uh, which means if I drink, I, you know, I'm trouble, <laughs> and um, on several levels. And uh, so my dad was roller skating down the street. Uh, he was going to high school in Cedar Rapids and, and saw my mom sitting on the porch and liked her and kind of kept skating around the same block and finally they talked one day and then they started skating together and uh, they got married. Uh, well, gosh, my sister's three years older than me, so she, they were married about four years before me and uh, were married for 57 years before my dad died. Wow. And they were all American, you know, pay your taxes, go to work, uh, don't complain, uh, do a good job, the best you can possibly do, and, and don't ask too many questions. And then I came along. <laughs> Given your grandfather's interest in music, did that sink in with your father at all? Well, my dad used to not talk about my, gran my grandfather very much. He told me a little bit about it, but not much about the music aspect of it. And then... Uh, Two weeks before my sixth birthday, uh, my sister was already playing accordion, Lady of Spain, <laughs> and um, my dad sat me down and said, I think it's time for you to start thinking about a musical instrument. And I went, drums! He goes, no. My dad was a jet engine mechanic on aircraft carriers, and the last thing he wanted to hear was me banging on a set of drums when he came home from work. She said, how about guitar? Nah. I'm telling Jerry, the most popular guy on the ship is a guy who can play guitar. Well, A, I didn't want to be in the Navy. B, I didn't want to be on a ship. And C, I most definitely did not want to play guitar. And, uh, but he persevered, and so I started taking lessons when I just, I was in, just started sixth grade. I mean, first grade, excuse me. Grudgingly, or did you actually? Grudgingly, I did not want to do it. And then I had this teacher, Mrs. Howe, who was, I mean, I'm 72 now. She was probably 72 when I started with her. So here I'm this little snot-nosed kid. And, <laughs> and she never played a note in front of me. She just sat at the piano with a conductor's baton and tapped on the music stand where the beat was and pointed where my fingers were supposed to be. And then if I didn't do it right, she'd poke me with it. Really? And I took uh, lessons for about two and a half years from her. Hated every single minute of it. And uh, finally, I quit practicing like my dad used to say have you given me your 30 minutes and or I'd come out and he goes that was only 28 you owe me two minutes and I found I just kept dragging my feet he said oh if you're not going to practice I'm not going to pay for it I said great so I put the guitar in the in the closet and didn't touch it for almost a year and a half and then a friend of mine down the street uh, I was probably about a little over 10 maybe a, close to 11 and a friend of mine Bob Waitsman down the street got an electrical guitar for Christmas and I went down to his house, and he was showing it to me. He played honky tonk for about thirty seconds. Ba -da, ba -da, ba -da, ba -da. And I went, "No, wait a minute! I could get behind that kind of music." Uh -huh. So I immediately went home, grabbed my guitar, started da -da, da -da, da -da, for probably about three or four months before my dad finally said, "Well, are you going to play guitar?" And I went, "Yeah." He goes, "Okay, what's next?" I said, "I want an electrical guitar." So we went down and got me one. Wow! What was your first one? The first guitar, yeah. it was a Harmony Rocket Tone, or no, Stratotone. This is your first electric? or Yeah, your, my uh -huh. first electric. My first acoustic was a Stella. Uh -huh. And uh, I think it was, uh, at that time, it was about $24. But my first electrical guitar, including amplifier, was $89. <laughs> and that was a K amplifier. <laughs> so did you go back to music lessons or guitar No, lessons? I just started teaching myself. Uh -huh. I knew enough about the principles. It's like, you know, once you've driven a car for a little while, you know the rules sure. of the road, you know where the key goes, and you know where the gear shift is. 
So I just started playing incessantly. Whereas before, my dad was always telling me, you know, don't, don't walk out of that room until I get my 30 minutes. Then it became, Jerry, put that guitar down. Dinner is ready. Now, I'll be out in a minute. And Sounds like it converted from a, a responsibility into a joy. Somehow. Oh, yeah. It definitely did. It became, instead of, instead of a chore, it became an avocation. I really look forward to getting home from school. And I had this little clock radio with a speaker about two and a half inches across. And I'd sit there and listen to, you know, stuff like, oh, I remember uh, a Johnny Cash song, Get Rhythm. Uh, get a rhythm when you get the blues. And I just went, oh, that's what I want to do. That is exactly what I want to do. And then, of course, the guys like Buddy Holly and, and uh, all these guys started coming along. And Elvis, I wasn't too keen on him, only because the girls liked him. And I wasn't into girls yet. <laughs> but the girls liked him so much that, of course, it wasn't cool to like him. And, um, but I started playing a lot of just what I heard on the radio. So when you say you, this is what I want to do, was that more like I just want to learn how to play this or you were already thinking of it, this is what I want to do with my life? Uh, I swear, yeah. It became my passion. It became my avocation. It became my vocation. It became my hobby. It became everything. It was all for me. So a lot of times, you know, people, when they speak of their childhood, they often either refer to it as being a really happy childhood or difficult. How would you categorize your childhood? The best of both. I, I was basically by nature a pretty happy guy, but my dad was such a stern because of his, you know, like I say, being under the influence of my grandfather, the yeah. man that I never met. My dad became a man at 12, and he expected me to be following his footsteps. And I wanted to be a kid. I wanted to play and have fun. So he was constantly on me about, you know, life is hard. You better learn these lessons. Life is hard. You've got to prepare for the worst. Always expect the worst. That's what one of his favorite lines. That's a hell of a way to grow up when you're a little kid. You know, always that's expect true. the worst. And yeah. another one he used to use was, when things are going really good, duck and cover, because that's when it's going to hit the fan. Oh, God. So when I'm having a good time, I kept having this little shadow over my head going, here it comes. And how old were you when this was really taking hold? I was 12, 13, and that's mm -hmm. when I decided I wanted to be a musician. Because mm -hmm. I see guys on TV, uh, you know, uh, uh, Smokey, Smokey Rogers had a TV show coming out of El Cajon. Uh, he had a, a club called Bostonia Ballroom, and my parents would watch it every Friday night. And, and I'd watch these guitar players, and I'd just be glued to the TV watching their fingers. And uh, I mean, no, not Lawrence Welk. That was, <laughs> that was verboten. But, um, and then one day I told him that I wanted to be a professional musician, and he just freaked because all I could think about was what his dad had done to him. Oh, yeah. And uh, he goes, you can have it as a hobby. You can always have it, but you should have a career. He wanted me to be in the Navy just like he was, and I had no desire whatsoever to be in the military. So the, it sounds as though a break began to happen and with your parents yes. about the time you were going into high school. And that's the interesting phenomenon to me is right when my dad died, my grandfather died at about 12, and I was 12, that's when me and my dad started to pull apart. Mm. Because he never really had a father after that, and he didn't know how to deal with it. And I always had a dad, and so I didn't know how to deal with it. And mm -hmm. um, it was hard for both of us. We put my mom through hell. Wow. We were the battling Bickersons for many, 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 many years. All this in lovely downtown Chula Vista. Well, we were on the outskirts, <laughs> on the edge of town, literally and figuratively. Uh, what was it like growing up in Chula Vista? Well, it was at that time when we were li when I was living there, it was like uh, 13,000 people. Uh, and we were right literally on the edge of, of the developed part of town. There was no roads, no houses east of us and south of us. It was all the Otai Ranch all the way to the Mexican border. And we'd go out and play army and go, you know, rolling around in the bushes and start fires. And, and, uh, <laughs> and there was just nothing out there. It was, it, was open. It, was, it was actually paradise, really. There were vernal pools, there were quail and deer and rabbits and all kinds of stuff out there. Now it's like 8.05 and it's all houses and shopping centers and it's quite a, it's a night and day difference. Well, it sounds like the great part of your childhood was all of that. The bad part was getting ready for the stuff to hit the fan because of course you're wanting to be a musician. Yep. Yeah. So was there ever really a full break with them? My father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just finally hit a point where I just couldn't put up with it anymore. And he could not cut me any slack. It just wasn't in his nature. 
And where were you musically at that point in time? Where did you well, have I had a band? my first band when I was in junior high school, uh, mm. the Tridents, as a matter of fact. There was three of us, hence the try. Uh, <laughs> Harry Myers on drums and Bob Weisman on guitar, because uh, he got me started, and really we fed off each other, the energy-wise, because we all just played all the time. And uh, then later on, we added a, a fourth for bridge, a piano player who lived next door to me, a guy named Greg May. And by the way, all these guys are gone now. Wow. And um, we started playing teen dances and at the Eagles Lodge and, uh, gosh, where else? Parties, you know, whatever. Wherever we could set up our gear and make some noise, we were there. Mm -hmm. What was next in, in your career? Uh, well, I played in that band for about two and a half years. I kept continuing school. Uh, now I'm in high school, actually late junior high school. And... Uh, Started a band with Carl Spire, and you remember Carl. Sure. And uh, we were called The Orphans. And uh, we made our first recording at when I was four, 14. And we met a guy through Carl's sister who kind of managed us. And we'd made a little garage recording, and she took it up to a guy in L.A. who was named Andy DiMartino, who was kind of a freelance producer. And he liked what he heard, so he brought us up there. And I'm, I'm 15 years old, and we're in a studio uh, recording my first song, which was called The Animal in Me. And um, yes, it's about that kind of animal. <laughs> and um, it got some interest. In fact, we got we had a deal with a, a little boutique label. I think it was called White Whale or, oh shoot, White, or White Whale, I think the, the label was called. And, uh, and they were, they were going to release it. And then there was another band that they had on their roster called Questions, Question Mark and the Mysterians I remember that had 96 them. Tears. Yeah. And all of a sudden they had a hit. And they could only handle one hit at a time, so they basically dropped us and went on with uh, Question Mark, whoever he was, never met them. <laughs> but uh, that was my first bitter lesson in music, you know. It's, it's a it's a dog eat dog business. There's no, no guarantees, there's no warranties, there's uh, just basically dumb luck and perseverance. You moved into where you were doing major concerts and the like. Did that happen before? You, you landed your next record deal with Elektra. No, no. I had a couple of other little oh, did you? Okay. boutique. Uh, and I mean, they were so minuscule and so meaningless that I can't even remember the names of the individuals. Or uh, There was one guy named Mike Shepard who heard about us and, and came down and listened to us at the Youth Center in Chula Vista and uh, came over and started talking all kinds of deals. He was also uh, Nancy Sinatra's manager. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we thought, wow, big time. Well, he was basically a con man. I mean, he was a nice guy, and he meant well, but it's just the world, that business is full of, of big dreamers, yeah, big dreamers. Yeah. And we were just as big dreaming as he was. So when I uh, started doing the big concerts is when I had quit. Um, I basically broke up uh, uh, um, that band and the Orphans and uh, laid low for a little while, and I started playing with Rick Cutler uh, and a guy named Jack Jacobson and a guy named Greg Willis, who was the original bass player in Iron Butterfly, uh, and uh, he got fired from that gig, and I don't think he ever recovered from it. We formed a band called The National Debt, and uh, we played a couple of gigs out at Southwestern College uh, for no money. And really, we're going nowhere. We were having a lot of fun playing together because we were doing like underground music. Oh, underground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The new, the next big thing. We weren't doing top forty, and that was the biggest thing for me was to get away from top forty. Because in the Orphans, all we did was what we heard on the radio. We had to learn at least four and five songs a week to remain current with the top forty. And uh, I would be in there in my, my little bedroom with my ear against that little transistor radio, learning songs. That's how I became so what well-versed in, in learning by ear. I mean, I could mm -hmm. hear a song, I could figure it out in three or four or five minutes, whether it was the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, or whatever. And uh, so I was always responsible for bringing in the m new material. So after I got sick of the, the uh, endless merry-go-round of top 40s, when I joined the National Debt, and we started making some of our own music, and I started writing more, and then more seriously. And uh, that first song I was telling you about, The Animal in Me, that I did uh, when I was 15, was but you know the songs of the day were just like you get a phrase and repeat it till ad nauseum you know uh, the animal me the animal me or my baby does the hanky panky my baby does the hanky panky yeah. that kind of thing so we actually started trying to write some songs with some lyrical content and some meaning and uh, but these guys Carl had joined a band 
called Linda and the Centaurs. And in San Diego at that time, the, the band model was four musicians and a girl singer. There was Sandy and the Accents. There was, uh, gosh, every band had the obligatory girl singer and then keyboards, guitar, bass, and drums. And they did top 40. But Carl was a really good player by this, by this time. He, he really applied himself and, and got very good on his instrument. And he kept telling the guys in that band about me. And uh, um, Cream just started happening. And all these other trios, Jimi Hendrix. And, and I like that idea because there's no, you're not stepping on anybody's toes. The drummer keeps his end up, the bass player keeps his end up, and I got total freedom to play whatever I dang well pleased. And um, like I say, it was a five-piece when I joined within about three months. <laughs> we dumped the girl singer, we dumped the keyboard player, we dumped the other guitar player. And, and he was really good. Danny Orlino was a kid from Guam who could, he was just a, amazing. He could hear a song and just play it, Im imitate it, like a parrot could hear something and, ta and say it mm, verbatim. Yeah. And he was just a much better guitar player than I was, except he didn't write. So after we got rid of the rest of the band, it was just Carl, and then we heard about a bass player out in Ocean Beach named Terry Fan, and I went out and played with him one day, and by the end of that two-hour playing session, we'd written two songs, and I could just see this guy was unique. He was a very accomplished player. He was offbeat. He didn't play, play like anybody. I mean, he wasn't trying to copy Hendrix or Jack Bruce mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. He was Terry Fan, and uh, that's when we started playing the concerts and stuff, and so was your style in, in guitar, was it what pushed you into trio, or was what trio what formed your style as a guitarist? Both. Both. Like I say, I like the conce concept of not stepping on the keyboard player's toes, and you have to rehearse, so he's playing the right chord when you're doing your thing, and vice versa. All you had to do was just play. Play whatever came into your mind. It was total spontaneity. And uh, then, like I say, we the first show, the big con first big con concert we ever did was opening for the original Mothers of Invention. Mm. And these guys were like, uh, we're talking like Roy Estrada and Bill Payne, who, who left that and started uh, Little Feet, and a guy named, uh, who was the keyboard player? A, ma a monster jazz player. But all the guys are just super, you know, accomplished. But they weren't reading charts. In the beginning, I mean, they, they would learn the songs and then they'd dump the charts. And I, I'd never seen anything like it. These guys are playing very complicated stuff, but just swinging. And then we opened up for <laughs> the opposite end of that extreme, which was the Jefferson Airplane. Uh, and it was just loosey-goosey, everybody just play what you want, no worrying about arrangements. They were good, they were great, but it was just, and that's, I, I was attracted to that because mm -hmm. a lot less rehearsal. <laughs> I don't like rehearsals. To this day, I don't like rehearsals. It's just kind of, there's an old joke about the more you rehearse, the less money you make. And that was good enough for me because I was just ready to go on stage and play. Uh -huh. And uh, if you like it, great. And if you don't, go outside and listen to your radio. So at that point in time, that must have been about, when, when did you, so you, you went through these, these boutique labels, several of them, you said. Mm -hmm. And that was probably what launched the concert opportunities did that then lead you to uh, Electra? Well, what happened there was uh, I left uh, um, the National Debt with Rick Cutler, Jack Jacobson, and, uh, and Greg Willis. And uh, Jack and uh, uh, Rick formed a duo, just keys and drums. And they moved up to Northern California. They started up in L.A. In fact, they used to play with, uh, do you know who Edward almost El is? The actor? the actor, yeah, yes. Well, he was a, a, a musician back mm -hmm. in those days, and he had a group called Eddie, Eddie and the Pacific Ocean, and uh, Rick and Jack became the Pacific Ocean, and uh, it was quite a scenario because he was just a over the, the characters that he plays on TV now, where he was so he was just wild and crazy kid jumping all over the place like a monkey, yeah, but he could sing. He was a real good showman, huh. and. Um, so they were doing that and getting better and better. And then Eddie got an acting possibility, so he left. And they moved up to Half Moon Bay uh, up in North, Northern California. And uh, were living at a machine shop uh, by the grace of a guy up there who was a music supporter. And they just kept practicing and getting these songs that Jack was writing these incredible, uh, I mean, <laughs> they were amazing pieces of work. Have, have mm -hmm. you ever listened to that Show of Hands album I gave you? I don't recall it. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, major, but they're all instrumental. 
Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. So they, uh, the manager, Jamie Weber, uh, brought up the vice president of West Coast Electra uh, to this place they were playing up in Northern California. I want to say the end of the beginning, but it wasn't that at the time. Uh, or, yeah, it was, the end of the beginning. And in Katati, where the uh, Sonoma University, Sonoma State is. And they played the show, and Russ was just blown away about what they were doing. It was really impressive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they were playing at a place down in Half Moon Bay called The Shelter. And uh, he decided he wanted to cut an album with these guys because Russ was a former singer himself, and he was looking for his first deal to produce his own band, his own project. And uh, so they talked to Jack Holzman, who was the founder and the owner of Electra, and uh, they said, okay, well, you can go to the studio down in L.A. and cut one album. We're not going to necessarily release it. We don't know yet, but you can cut an album. And they did. And uh, so Jack Holzman, who had the power, said... You know, it's interesting. It's definitely not commercial, but if they could find somebody who could sing and play more than one instrument, like a guitar or a flute or harmonica or whatever, uh, we'll give it another shot. And they thought of me. And I was down in L.A., I mean, excuse me, in San Diego, playing at the Club Marina out on Shelter Island five nights a week, uh, doing Top 40 again, Sweet Caroline, five times a night. And I was disgusted. I'd quit framework. I was just done with the whole San Diego scene. I wanted the hell out of town. And uh, they came down and did a sales sales job on me. There might have been some party favors involved, but I won't go into detail. And um, so at the end of it, I said, let's give it a go. And then we found this hotel up on the Russian River in a little town called Monterio. And we met with Jack Holzman and, uh, in, in the main offices at uh, uh, Electra in Hollywood. And if you've ever seen One Trick Pony with Paul Simon, yes, uh, there's a scene where he's trying to play songs for the owner, who was played by Rip Torn. Mm-hmm. And that was modeled on Jack Holzman. Huh. Uh, and if you see this side by side, very, I mean, they, they captured, it was good casting. So I'm sitting there and you go, okay, play a song. And I had this, this 12 string and I'm trying to play a song. And, and I heard him say, okay, hold my calls, which I think was a signal to his receptionist that the first call comes in, forward it through. So uh, I start a song, and about 20 seconds later, the phone would ring. Uh, I thought I told you to hold my calls. Uh, oh, okay, i got to take this one, Jerry. Think of another song. And he'd talk for a minute and then come back and hold my calls. And I'd get into the next one. 10, 15 seconds, and the phone would ring. That went on for about 30 minutes. And afterwards, he goes, I just don't know if this is something we can use. And then Russ Miller said, you know, you promised me I'd get a project. And this is the, you know, the last year of my contract. I want, this, I want this job. I want this contract. I want this production. And they said, okay. And Jack Holston said to my face, I don't think this is a good idea. I think it's a waste of money. But Russ kind of exacted a promise out of me. So here we go. Uh, that's and, encouraging. Yeah. That's, that's before we even fir- cut our first song. So here we are, a band with, a, with a, and our manager uh, used to sell uh, uh, Vox amplifiers to the Beatle bands down in Mexico and TJ, and he was a salesman. He could sell ice to, uh, uh, to uh, Eskimos and condoms to eunuchs, you know. I mean, he was a good salesman. <laughs> and uh, so he t- gave, we got a deal, man. We got, we got so much upfront money, I was amazed. It was like, and today's money would be about $100,000, $150,000. Really? And, and that in, in, plus a budget and, uh, and a starting date at Electra Studios. So then a mutual friend, this lady, had heard it, knew this hotel, a little old ramshackle place up in Monterio called the Village Inn. And Monterio is a town of about, in the wintertime, about 700 people, and in the summertime, about 3,000, because all the people come up from the city and live in their little you know, weekend cabins up there. And it was just a really funky old three-story place. It was built during a... In 1906, after the earthquake, all the lumber guys were up there cutting down all the redwood trees to rebuild San Francisco. And it started off as a brothel. All the rooms upstairs were like about six by seven. There was a little sink in the corner and just enough room for a bed. Uh, Then there was a little uh, 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 restaurant downstairs and, and a living room. So we moved in there in January of 1970, January the 4th. And uh, we started rehearsing, and we rehearsed, and we rehearsed, and finally, after about seven months, we thought we were ready. We went down to Hollywood and stayed at Sandy Koufax's Tropicana Hotel <laughs> and uh, for about four months and cut the tracks and then came back up north and uh, started getting calls immediately. There's not a single on this deal. There's not one song that's a single. And mm. I was singing. The, nobody had ever really heard. We'd never actually even, until we started recording that album, performed for anybody as that band in that configuration. 
So it was it was so like uh, the Sex Pistols, you know, the great rock and roll swindle. Yeah, remember that yeah, movie? Yeah, yeah. We beat them by 15 years. Hmm. Uh, we did the same exact thing. So um, little by little, we started honing the sound and uh, the powers that be. You know, we were supposed to quote unquote have artistic freedom. And then they said, well, you needed some covers. You need to do some other people's stuff. Otherwise, we're not going to release this. And the album was already cut and ready to go to the pressing plant. And I said, well, what about artistic freedom? Well, you have artistic freedom, but you, you don't have uh, uh, this distribution. So if you don't have distribution, all you've got is a tape. Here's the tape. You can take it and do what you want. Mm -hmm. Oh. So uh, while we were recording our album, uh, this guy started stopping by. Uh, and he turned, I forget his name, turned out to be the bass player for Van Morrison's latest configuration. And he was cutting an album and started bringing some acetates of what they were working on. And he brought this one song that I really liked instantaneously, Moon Dance. And I said, God, you suppose you'd mind if we did this song? And he goes, I'll ask. And uh, so he's, I guess. So we cut it and um, we put it on the album. And after the thing was done, the album came out, Moon Dance. It was the single off that album. So now all of a sudden what turned into a plus turned into, uh, we were now a top 40 band again. Uh. And uh, there was another song. I did a Hendrix medley and... Uh, uh, a song by Richie Havens called No Opportunity Needed, No Experience Necessary. And then they put, put the album out. And we, followed, we were very conscientious. We followed it through the mastering process. And we went down to the sound lab and watched the whole deal being done. And we, were, we wanted this to be right. And, uh, well, they sent it to the pressing plant. And the last step of the pressing plant is when the albums are pressed, they put it in the cover. And then they put it in the shrink wrap machine. And they had made a little misadjustment or maladjustment. And the shrink wrap machine wrapped the albums too tight and the shrink wrap when it goes on is warm oh. so it basically warped the first 35,000 albums you put the needle down on track one side one and it would like this and it would jump and skip, skip all yeah. the way to album, uh, cut five and but they'd already sent out copies to all the music directors program directors to every major station in the United States and they all had the same experience what these guys are professional so uh these guys meaning the record label or you us oh man so that was the kiss of death because they went back and repressed all of those records uh at, right this time but the you know the first impression is the lasting impression so they got another one yeah right i remember these guys and uh we we kind of died right there mm -hmm. we uh it was interesting to me is that la really supported us new york did not but we sold more records in new york than we ever did in la we were just too weird. I mean, it was just, it was kind of a jazz fusion. Although we, I found out not too many years ago that we're huge as an underground thing in Europe. And we're called Prague Rock. Uh, and this is before Yes and any of those other bands. Uh -huh. And uh, it, we got some favorable reviews. And, and I had got reviewed in Playboy magazine. They said I sang like Mel Torme in his golden years. <laughs> which was interesting to me, because anytime I heard a singer that I didn't really dig, I said, it sounds like a second-rate Mel Torme. So it kind of came back to bite me on the butt. But um, we started cutting our second album. We were about halfway through. We had about five tracks. And uh, uh, Electra got sold by Jack Holzman to Kidney Corporation, which owned Atco, Atlantic, Reprise, Warner Brothers, uh, they also owned Mad Magazine and all the parking uh, facilities in, all, in every major city in America. You know, mm. if you go down to park your car, you're, you're parking in a Kinney Corporation parking lot. And, uh, and they came in and basically fired everybody uh, from the janitors up. Jim Morrison had died, so their major cash cow went away. Uh, and the only people that were making money for them then was Bread and I think Judy Collins. And mm -hmm. everything else was just kind of so... Uh, I forget the name of the guy who came in. He was a. He started Asylum Records. He he was he's a big player now. I mean he's huge. Uh, my memory escapes me. Yeah. You've got a computer handy. I can look it up. But uh, anyway, we were done. We were done, and I was done with L.A. I did not want to live in L.A. Nobody did. Rick and Jack went back up north, and uh, went back up to the Russian River area, and I moved to Del Mar, California, where I met our mutual friend Butch. And pretty soon I'm living with him. And I've been there about a week, a week and a half, and he told me about this club down in Del Mar, this restaurant called the Albatross. And you want to go down and have dinner? I'll buy you dinner. We can, there's a band playing there, and you might meet somebody. 
Well, as luck would have it, it was John Markowski, Tim Cash, uh, Boomba, uh, 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 and I forget what was the other drummer, Bruce Morris were playing. And I walked in there, and they knew me, and I knew them. And they asked me to sit in, and I did Moon Dance, and I did The City, but, you know, and I got a standing ovation. The first time I'd been on stage, I got any kind of response from anybody anywhere in years. And uh, next thing I know, I had that band, I had that gig, and uh, I, I, was, I was going. I was hooked up again. Crazy. That way How this did business it feel? Works. I mean, did it feel like a, obviously it felt, it had to feel like a bit of a step back Going into a relatively small club after playing major concerts with, and we opened up for a lot of major people too. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Grateful Dead several times, Creedence Clearwater, Poco, the original Mother's Invention, as I mentioned. Uh, who else? Uh, Creedence Clearwater. Uh, we opened up for a lot of major. Uh, Steve Miller, uh, Santana, uh, a lot of major acts. So yes, in that respect, it seemed like a step back, but at the same time, it sure was good to have somebody going. Sure. I'm enjoying your music again. Yeah, yeah. Because when I was a show of hands, we called ourselves formerly Anthrax. Uh, we called the album Show of Hands, but uh, Electra didn't like formerly Anthrax. And by the way, we were originally called Anthrax, but Electra wouldn't let us use that name because you know what it is. It's a sure. cattle disease. And uh, so I said, well, how about we call ourselves formerly Anthrax? And they said, you can, call, you can call your album that, but you still need a name. And I said, hey, all we're looking here is for a freaking show of hands. Hey, that's a good title. Let's use that. <laughs> so, but whenever we played out, we called ourselves uh, formerly Anthrax and the album was Show of Hands. They always promoted us as Show of Hands with our album formerly Anthrax. Uh -huh. So that was another strike against us with the label. But it felt good to have somebody appreciating us because our music was so obscure, so abstract, so off the, the beaten path that people, we, we do these incredibly complex songs. There's one on that album called I Want to Fly, which is just a beautiful, lovely, one of my favorite all-time things I've ever been involved in. But it goes through key changes and it goes through uh, 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 tempo changes and all this stuff. And we do it perfectly and people go, what? Mm. <laughs> Not speaking of ringing endorsements. So it yeah. was nice to hear people going, yeah. I remember those days as there were a lot of people who were just really down on anybody that played what they called commercial music. Mm -hmm. So it, it was probably a feather in your cap that you didn't play commercial, even if the response wasn't all that great. And plus, if you remember then what the commercial thing was, this was just on the, the precursor of disco. The big thing back then when I was doing that was like, you know, uh, 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 Steely Dan. Was, yes. Was one yes. of my favorite bands that whole era. Yeah. But uh, they were commercially obscure for a good many years. I mean, they they had that first big hit, uh, you know, do it again. But after that, they just struggled. They had great albums, great reviews, but they just didn't have that. The later on, they started getting the hits. They started getting some commercial playtime. So what was your lifestyle like back in those days? I was a rock and roll gypsy. I was living with Butch at his place, which was right across from the Del Mar racetrack. He gave me a uh, a t an old tack room, you know, where they hung, hung saddles and bridles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we built a corral for a couple of horses that he had. And one of my jobs is to ride them every day down to the beach and exercise them. And at night I'd play at the Albatross or wherever else I could get a gig. And um, I remodeled the room and uh, I had a pretty nice thing. I mean, I did, didn't pay any rent. Uh, he gave me a car to drive. Um, Basically, and from there on, I mean, how many how times did I sleep on your couch? <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I was, a couch, I was a couch gypsy, basically. But I was always playing. But I, I had other things I needed to spend my money on. Which included? Party favors, you know. <laughs> and you could name them, and I spent my money on them. But I always had a place to hang my head. I slept in my car a few nights. But, uh, you know, I, I always got by somehow, mainly because I was a funny guy and people liked me because I'd use my humor to my advantage. And people, hey, come on over to my house. You can stay here a while. I always thought of you as the Don Rickles of rock and roll. <clears throat> I did, too. Plus, I always had, and I can't even tell you why for sure, I had an adversarial uh, uh, relationship with the audience. If you liked me, great. I wasn't worthy. But if you didn't like me, screw you. So you couldn't, I couldn't win, you know. I mean, I'm out there just doing what I do. If you don't like it, too bad. If you did like it, I'm not worthy of it. How can you win? You're not unique that way, though. I, mean, I know. Like, when, when, when I think about it, I think a lot of the people that I know that really dedicated themselves to music really lived a love-hate relationship with the audience. Yep. Because once they like you, 
they want to own you. Mm. And I refused to be owned by anybody. I mean, I remember when I had that song, The Blue Play Special, and I started playing it at the, at the Belly Up. And there was quite a few people out there that would request that song two and three times a night. And I got to be in the point where, no, I don't want to play it anymore, mm -hmm. which is not what you're supposed to do when you have fans that want to hear your, your big song. That was my big song as, as a, of original. Mm -hmm. And uh, other than that, God bless those cocktail lounges, <laughs> which is a true story written out of, you know, ripped from the headlines. Has that love-hate relationship changed? Oh, God, years? considerably. You know, the biggest thing that did it for me was starting to play the old folks' homes and going out and playing for these people that they're just so grateful that anybody shows up to play. Mm. Uh, and then I can do those songs from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And I have never really played them the first time around, so they're not, you know, cliche to me. Some of them are great songs, Cole Porter and all these really great writers. And they listen, they tap their toes, they sing along, and sometimes even get up and dance, and they make me feel... Like all of a sudden that wall's gone. I want to. I like to see them happy, and the happier they seem, the happier I get. So it's mm. like a real trade-off. Uh, you didn't used to be that way. Yeah. I I was playing back in those days, the early days, because I needed money. If I could have found another way to make a living and 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 do what I wanted to do and not have any restrictions and have, and didn't have to work for anybody else but me, I would have done it. Were you also motivated by the status and the crowd you could run with? Well, if you want to get into that, I mean, one of the guys I was just mentioning uh, was a major drug trafficker. Uh, uh, and, I mean, it was perfect for me being a major drug user. It was like, you know, made in heaven. Uh, he always had whatever I wanted, how much I wanted, and it was free. Mm -hmm. So uh, I took full advantage of that. And when you're at the bar, people want to buy you drinks because they, they want to get your friend, you know, hey, I want to be your friend. Buy me a drink. Or they want to take me outside on the break and, and put party favors in whatever orifice I had available. And, um, <laughs> Maybe we better define party favors. <laughs> you know what I mean. Cocaine, I do, pot, hash, <laughs> opium. Okay. I was a garbage pail. My drug of choice is whatever you had. I would have sat down with Adolf Hitler if he was uh, chopping lines, pouring scotch, or uh, rolling joints. Uh, and I would have been his best friend. As long as he was rolling, as long as he was cutting, and as long as I was there. I would have, hey, nice to see you. I, I, was a, I was a piece of work. You mentioned a name that's near and dear to both of us, Boomba. Yes, indeed. Tell me about Boomba. Well, Boomba was one of the first guys I reconnected it with when I moved to North County. Uh, and Butch took me over to his house. And uh, I used to know him from the D.C. Blues Band, and they used to play at the Cardiff Lodge. And uh, I kind of knew most of the guys, but Boomba I had actually had a conversation with a couple of times. And he was just such an interesting gentleman. Uh, from the Virgin Islands and had that deep, low, uncola kind of, you know, voice. And, ah, ha, ha. and uh, but we had some really great conversations. And I always remembered that. And then when I'm at his house and we started talking and he said something to me that I'll never forget because I was I was so destroyed. My images of the music business, my dream label was Electra, And that turned out to be a nightmare. Uh, all the famous and rich and famous people I met, the Everly Brothers or whatever, they were all as, sometimes as big a drug users as I was. And I was just really disillusioned with the whole business. And I did not want to go back up to L.A. I did not want to be a part of that. And Boomba sat down with me and said, you know, there's a lot of people that are grateful to see you. There's a lot of people from San Diego that remember you from True. Framework. And uh, we really res respected you and we really were sorry to see you go. And I kind of went, I had no idea. I, I mean, I was just mm -hmm. another player out there trying to make a buck. And... Uh, and that kind of encouraged me. And then next thing you know, I'm in this reporting, recording project with a guy named Dan Danner on bass and Chris Drake on guitar and Boomba. And, uh, and gosh, it was just amazing. Uh, and then next thing you know, I was kind of enjoying myself again. Bill Blue on, was the engineer. Ron Midegg was the producer. and yeah. uh, Carl Spiron. Carl Spiron on drums. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So Carl and my, we started off in the Orphans, and then we broke up and got together in... Uh, uh, framework, and then got together again uh, in, in my, my own band. And uh, we played together for off and on many years. And just for the listener, Boomba was a nickname that he got. His name was Raphael, Raphael Hendricks. 
And Bumba was, that was a type of conga, right? Yes, the biggest, deepest conga. And uh -huh. because Bumba had that voice, that's, that was a nickname. Yeah. And he came to this country as a limbo dancer. Uh, back when the limbo was all the craze, uh, he was in the, steel, in the Virgin Island Steel, National Steel Band. They had like little areas that have competitions, and yeah. his band won the number one competition of all the, the Virgin Islands. And they came with a contract. Uh, they toured all over the place. They were on uh, Ed Sullivan. They were on Steve Allen. He was in a, uh, his band was in a movie with Jerry Lewis. Uh, he, he was, you know, uh, I, I, by anybody's estimation, he was doing good. Yeah. But then his feet started bothering because he was the guy doing the low dance underneath the bar. Mm -hmm. And he developed uh, not cysts, but another uh, thing on, his, on the arches of his feet that had mm -hmm. to be surgically repaired and kind of ruined him for dancing. For, but then he picked up percussion. And of all the conga players I played with, I always liked the way he played because he played a, the Caribbean way where he's not pushing the beat like Latin guys do. He was on the back side of the beat laying back. And it was almost like on the upside down side. But it was great because it just kind of had this gentle... Because I'm, I'm a pusher. I'm a type A. You know, I'm always pushing the beat, and he was always laying back on the beat. Mm. So we kind of offset each other very nicely. You must have offset each other nicely other ways, too, because that's one of the special friendships of your life, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Boomba, you, you are one of them also. But I mean, not to how I got the gig here, but um, <laughs> you have seen me, and Boomba also have seen me at my absolute worst, the absolute bottom of my barrel. But you also saw me at my best. And you loved me anyway. And to me, that's the criteria of what I call a true friend. Hmm. And I had a lot of friends that, you know, just couldn't take it. It was too painful or too irritating or too much of whatever. But they just shined me on and moved on. And a lot of those people are, are, are glad to hear that I got well, but they can't overcome the disappointment and the bitter aftertaste that's left in their mouth from having known me. Because I was a user. I took advantage of everybody. I took advantage of you. I took advantage. Because that's what I did. <clears throat> well, you know, um, one of the things I most admire about you is the work that you've done on yourself. I mean, <clears throat> because I, one of the things about taking inventory of oneself, you've done that fearlessly. You've really, really looked well, at there yourself. There lots of fear. <laughs> Well, whatever there was, you, you overcame it because, I mean, you, you've been really straight up about what your life was all about, what you did, good and bad. You faced all of it. How long have you been sober now? I just turned 30 years clean and sober. Oh, that's so great. It's a miracle. Yeah. I'm yes. lucky to be here, and I'm grateful to be here, and I'm astounded that I'm here. A lot of my friends that did not push the envelope as hard as I did are gone, and here I am. Uh, I guess there's a reason, and I have a mission. And uh, if it means spreading the message, which I'm happy to do, I don't like to talk about AA a lot when I do these kind of things because it's all about anonymity. And I've just violated my own anonymity, which is against one of the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know what? I, I'm not ashamed of it. I don't try to hide it. I just don't want to, any way, shape, or form, look like I'm trying to capitalize on it. Right, right, right. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting too that that uh, with that there come there there had it seems like there were emotional highs and lows through that that and and emotions that you hadn't even known you had oh, that yeah. surfaced. And when you're numb all the time, you can't feel those emotions. Yeah. So, but now you you really seem like I mean, so many good things are happening. You know, one thing though, before I get too far ahead, one of the things that we began to kind of touch on that, that struck me when you were talking about the music teacher that you had with mm -hmm. the little baton, mm -hmm. uh, was when did you decide to teach? About 29 years ago. And one of the things I always <clears throat> loved about your style of teaching is that I too had a teacher, only mine was a Catholic nun who was probably about 80 years old when I first started playing piano. I was in first or second grade and she was trying to teach me and it was the same deal it was all about discipline and you know nuns can be pretty handy with rulers so if if, if you're not practicing but i bet i'm more sexually <laughs> repressed than she was <laughs> but one of the things that i will never forget was you you were the first person i ever said, heard say to your pupils your students go practice don't play don't go practice, play. play don't practice play 
So it sounds like was the cornerstone of your teaching really to have people love and enjoy music over Oh, yes. More than I decided technique? very early on from almost before I taught my first student, I was not going to teach the way my teacher taught. Because I know she was taught the way her teacher taught her. She taught that same way. Mm-hmm. And um, music is a joy. Music is fun. Music is, is, is how I breathe. It's how I create. It's how I communicate. And uh, I had a lady take her son away from me. Uh, early on, and she came and said, well, we're not going to use you as a teacher anymore. And I said, why? Because he's enjoying his lessons too much. Really? And I said, excuse me? She goes, M- music is a discipline. It's not about having fun. It's about learning the rigid regimentation of music. And da 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 And I said, well, I'm sure you'll find somebody that'll teach him that way, but it ain't going to be me. Maybe you could have recommended karate or Army-Navy Academy or something. <laughs> but can you imagine that concept that music is not fun? True, true. It's a, for me, it's my, it's my way to meditate, my way to communicate, my way to relax, my, to inspire, to, I mean, it's just, it's all for me. I enjoy, to this day, after all these years, enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. I get something out of it. And yeah. I know that there's, every once in a while I get emails from people I haven't seen in 20 years saying, you know, my son still plays and he still talks very fondly of you and the way you taught him. And I went, great, that's my job here all. is done. Oh, that's great. Because I don't talk about my first teacher that way. Yeah. Or you yours. What's interesting, too, is that um, over the course of the spiritual, the physical and spiritual evolution that recovery has been for you, at, at this point in your life, one of the other triumphs that I see in your life is that you have found such a perfect mate that the woman in your life, she's so remarkable, and the two of you just seem so good together. Ah, she's okay. <laughs> You're in Sorry, big honey. trouble. <laughs> Yes, that's very true. And an interesting story about that was she was married to Carl Spiron for 10 years. And mm-hmm. I met her before Carl did. <clears throat> but I was with somebody else, and she was just getting out of a bad relationship. And, and then she met Carl, and they started dating. And I was tempted to warn her because Carl is a great, incredible, was a great, incredible drummer, but he was kind of difficult. And, uh, but after he passed away, gosh, 10 years ago, uh, we, I really got pretty close to her while he was close to passing. And uh, then we started talking after the funeral. And then we started hanging out and having coffee. And uh, I told her, because I just got out of a really bad relationship. And I said, no, no, mm-hmm. no, I don't want any. I'm done. I'm never, ever, absolutely never, ever again. And I said, we're going to take this really, really slow. If this is going to happen, it's going to go really, really slow. Well, a little over a year later, we got married. Oh, that's wonderful. And it, we got married for... for for all the right reasons, I think. We're compatible, we travel well together, we love each other, we're, we, uh, we have similar likes and dislikes. I mean, don't get me wrong, I irritate the living hell out of her, uh, only because I'm me. I mean, the only problem with this marriage <laughs> is the fact that I'm in it, you know? Other than that, it's pretty darn good. <laughs> so, at this stage then, what does the future hold? What, how would you describe your musical life and what's ahead for you? What do you want? Well, I am, Pulling away perform- performing, not for the old folks. I'll, I'll do that until they carry me out of there. Uh, I will never stop teaching, but I'm done playing in bars. I'm done playing in places where uh, alcohol is the headliner and you're the opening act. I'm done playing in places that don't really appreciate music. Basically, they have you in there because you're, you're sort of like wallpaper. Um, I'm done playing for people that don't appreciate music. If you appreciate music and you want to hear what I got to say and do, I'm, I'm there, but not for any other kind of scenario. It's just not, it's, it's after all these years, I've learned where I want to be. I finally found my niche after wow. 50 years of struggling. Because I was on a, when I was on stage in front of 30,000 people opening up for the headliners, you look down on a day show and the first 10 rows are so messed up on wine, reds and whatever, and you're going, man, I practiced really hard to get here and look at this. They're not listening to me. They're not listening to anything. Yeah. They, they can't hear anything. And then you realize that they're not there to hear you anywhere. They're there for the opening act. And uh, I just, I don't necessarily need to be the star of the show. I just want to play for an audience that's appreciative, attentive, and, and listens to what, I, what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. Well, anything you want to say about what you see ahead for you in the future? Uh, my wife and I are getting ready to downsize and move back up to Washington where I was born to a little town called Squim, which is right on the northern edge of the Olympic Peninsula. 
the town is about 7,000 people. It's beautiful. Oh, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's, and it's close to uh, Port Angeles and Port Townsend. So if I want to catch a ferry and go to Canada after Trump gets reelected, I'm only kidding. <laughs> um, uh, we can. Uh, hopefully I won't have to. Please. Um, and I'm going to continue to teach up there. I've already met the guy that owns a local music store. He said I can teach as much or as little as I want. And there's lots of old folks homes there because a lot of Southern Californians are retiring up there. So probably I'll run up, run into you up there. Well, that's kind of like the banana belt. It, it, it's called the banana belt because it's right in the shadow of the Olympic Mountains and right on the edge, the northern edge of the Hood Canal. So between the mountains, all the clouds and storms that come in off the Gulf of Alaska separate and, and go around that town. And the pilots, the local pilots in the area, call it the blue hole. Because if you're flying and it's all clouds down below you, if you see a blue hole, that's where squim is. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's just so... And the, when I was up there the last time we went in May, and I went to the Costco to get gas on a weekday at around noon, and I pull in, and there's one other car in all the 10 bays, and I'm not taking a picture. And the guy comes <laughs> over, you're taking a picture of our gas station? I said, you don't get this down where I come from, man. Go to Costco on any given weekday, <laughs> midday, and see what you, you have 28 cars in front of you. So I'm looking forward to that. Much slower, uh, easier, well, it peaceful sounds like way a wonderful life. life ahead. And then I'll die. <laughs> we all will. <laughs> But you know what? Thank you for, for everything you've done for me in terms of what you taught me. I mean, like, before I met you, I really had zero f appreciation of rhythm and what rhythm really means in music. And like you were rhythm Catholic, too, weren't you? Uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> I should have. But I didn't. Well, you know, practice, but practice. But, I mean, I learned, and, and, and to hear you as in trio and, and begin to, I mean, I, can't, I still can't really grasp it, but I can see it and hear it. You know what you did as a guitarist and just singing and and everything you did in trio and how you filled in and the different the different kinds of feeling you could put into rhythms and that sort of thing i really had zero appreciation of that until you and uh you taught me a lot about music and and a lot about life and i thank you for that and i thank you for being here to do this little podcast and I would like to close saying well thank you for being such a good long time friend you have always looked after me you've looked up to me you've looked in on me when times are pretty bad and pretty scary you came in and looked in on me just to make sure i was i was alive and for that i will never forget and you've always been a good steady friend and i really appreciate that about you so thanks for allowing me to come in and talk about myself what are, <laughs> what are the odds oh thanks thank you jerry mccann is a great success He's not a rock star, selling out stadium concerts, but all it takes is to see the hero worship on faces of his music students, or spend some time with Jerry and his wife Deborah to see that if living a good life is success, Jerry's made it. I heard a voice, a very soft and lovely voice, realized it came from you. I heard a song, an old familiar song and recognized it when I knew the real power of any song is when you find someone to sing along I found the beauty in your harmony it's what I hear when you sing Be sure to join us for the next episode of Unspoken, Unsung. If there's someone in your life whose story inspires you, let us know. Unspoken, Unsung is here to tell stories that inspire, to share the lessons offered in lives whose stories all too often go unspoken, unsung. Drop us a line at martin at conversair.org. That's martin at conversair, C-O-N-V-E-R, S-A-Y-E-R dot org. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversaire studio, Carlsbad, California. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. 
Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme song, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Gwynn Jones for Zapsplat. Two songs, Cocktail Lounges and The Real Power, were written and performed by Jerry McCann. <laughs>